0: I am J.A. Lovelock, a barrister, an author, but most importantly, a crime junkie. Welcome to my podcast, Behind the Yellow Tape. In this episode of Behind the Yellow Tape, I am joined by Ashley Nugent. Ashley has quite an experience of and in the criminal justice system and is here to tell us all about this experience. Hello, Ashley, and welcome to the program.
1: Hello, Joanna.
0: Now, we're going to get right into it in a moment, but let's start from the very beginning. Tell us about your background. Paint the picture for us.
1: I, I didn't get on a school, therefore. They, they thought I was so energetic, so bonkers, so difficult to, to, to keep still. They sent me to the doctor who put me on medication. My parents gave me the medication once, I fell asleep with my face and my tea, And they didn't give me the medication ever again. <laughs> they mm-hmm. set me running and swimming and doing all kinds of activities, playing the trombone. <laughs> and that still wasn't <laughs> enough to contain me. <laughs> nowadays, I, I, I work with a lot of young people. Mm-hmm. And I talk a lot about ADHD. I don't really like the term myself. Mm-hmm. I don't think I have an attention deficit, I think my attention span just is maybe an attention different to the average, maybe, Mm -hmm. Uh, but I don't see that as being a deficit, too little, Um, and I don't see my hyperactivity as being a disorder, I see it as a blessing. Mm -hmm.
0: When did you become noticed by the criminal justice system? When did that start?
1: When I was 14. I was riding a bike and the police pulled up, skidded onto this park where we used to hang out and jumped out the car and came running over to me saying that somebody had stolen a bike. Now, I was riding a bike that belonged to my best friend and he had a serial number on the bike. The police can radio in and it says what the address, the, the bike so friends were shouting, it's my bike, it's my bike, radio in the serial number, it's my bike. And the police were like, well, okay the girls in the chip shop from where the bike was taken saw the lad who stole the bike. So the police said, come in the car with us, we'll take you to the chip shop, and if the girls in the chip shop say it wasn't you, we'll bring you straight back to your friends, you'll be back here in 10 minutes. So I said, well, okay, let's go and see the girls in the chip shop. And they drove straight past the chip shop and took me to Prescott police station where they locked me up in the cells for a number of hours until one of my parents was able to get out of work and come and see me. They even took me to court and and, and tried to force me to plead guilty to having stolen this bike. And as it turns out, the girls in the chip shop had seen the lad who'd stolen the bike. And they, of course, looked nothing like me because no one around there did. (laughs) He was, of course, white and a well-known thief. And I was not a a, a thief or, or, you know, in any way uh, criminally minded or involves any criminal activity. And that kind of thing went on. By the time I was 16, I'd been arrested, I'd been pulled up and searched countless times. My parents had written to our local MP to complain about it, they complained to the police a number of Mm -hmm. times. I've been arrested a number of times. Every time everyone's hanging out on the park, getting drunk and taking drugs and all that kind of thing, there'd be maybe there'd be tens, maybe 30, 40 young people on the park hanging out, getting drunk and all kinds of things. And they'd always approach me. And a couple of those times, I ended up getting dragged into a car. <laughs> Remember one time they, they asked me if, if, I, if I, this is in the summertime, they, they asked me if, if I had escaped from one of the local care in the community homes because I looked not only suspicious, I guess, but totally, um, well, ill, (laughs) mentally ill as far as they were concerned, because I was sat looking at a pond, wearing a vest and had a sweaty face. It was July, I'd been for the jog, and I decided to sit and look at the pond for a minute before I went home. So this was the kind of way it went on. And that's why I eventually took that trip to Jamaica, Tell us more mm. about that. Well, okay. I I had been to Jamaica the previous year when I was 15, turning 16. So now at 16, just about to turn 17, I went back to Jamaica. It was all part of this, you know, I had this identity foisted upon me from as far back as I can remember, comments about how we're, Black, or I'm not really black. You're not like those other black people because you're not really dark black, you know. Oh, I know your dad is, but, I know, but your dad's really nice, isn't he? He makes good food. He's not like <laughs> the other ones, you know. And you're kind of half caste or you're colored, are you? And I didn't know what these terms meant because nobody explained any of this. I remember standing on top of the bin in the bathroom and looking in the mirror in the bathroom and trying to find them stripes of colour on my face the red, purple, yellow, orange. I, I'm definitely haven't got colours on me face. So why did he keep saying I'm coloured? Because even though my dad was six foot two, and he used to dress real, real sharp, as I say, he was real, real professional, now he was real successful. He had a huge afro at the time and a big afro beard. And yet none of that seemed any reason for anyone to point out that he looked any different to my friend's dad's that, you know, you don't, as a child, you don't think that, oh, oh, I, oh I see the melon in the pigment, that's what you mean, oh, the curly hair, oh, that's a, that's a difference, is it, you know? Um, so yeah, I, I went to Jamaica to try and find out, I decided I will take on this black lad identity, but I don't really know what that means. So I was listening to rap music. I was listening to Bob Marley. I had posters all over my bedroom of NWA. And you know I, I what, I was trying to find a way. I thought there must be a way of being, a way of feeling, a way of behaving different if everybody claims that I'm different, but I didn't know what that difference was supposed to be. So I went to Jamaica looking for that. And I, the first time I went to Jamaica, I felt uh, a kind of affinity. I felt just something real, real deep, something innate. And I thought, oh, there is part of me here. I don't really think the Jamaicans necessarily felt that from me, but I don't know. I was in somebody else's country. Um, I'm the tourist. Obviously, what happened then on that second trip was I ended up getting in a lot of trouble, whereby I really, really found out what my standing is um, or what my racial identity is, in jamaica how it's different how they have a different system so did you do want me to tell you how oh, yes please okay. oh yes please so, so i i i was a young i was 16 years old i by now i'd started to believe i was a bit tougher i wasn't a violent person in school i, I people would hit me and say racist things and it hit me at all i wouldn't even fight back i just didn't see the point in violence. i didn't like it didn't see the point in it didn't care who was meant to be dead. sort it wasn't a thing to me but eventually you get sick of being pushed around and you start to think, oh, I, I should fight back. And you have all the hormones raging and the angst of being a young person and the resentments of school and the police and the state institutions. So I was, I was getting angry by now and I thought I was a bit of a bad boy. So I was wandering around Jamaica, I was very, very drunk.
0: Whereabouts in Jamaica were you?
1: Montego Bay. and. A guy stepped out from behind the wall and started talking to me, hey English, where you from? And then he snapped the chain off my neck, Uh, they had a gold chain, a rope chain, Um, so I fought with him, he pulled out a knife, he stabbed me a few times, the police came, we were very aggressive with the police, I eventually collapsed, they had to get me in the back of the car, I remember them saying they didn't want me bleeding all over the back of the car. but they got me in the car anyway so and from that point out, I guess they didn't really like us I guess there's this perception of English rich light skin think you rude boys coming over here causing trouble that kind of resentment jealousy maybe they took me to the hospital where I spent I spent all night I got stitched up very poorly <laughs> uh, they put me on a drip and uh, I, I, I went back to the hotel the next day, got in the shower, and realized he they'd missed one of the stab wounds. There was one. So they, they stitched up me uh, t- two two stitches in, in in me in one hole of me thigh, one stitch in the other hole of me thigh. So it looked like a figure of eight sticking out around the stitch. <laughs> and they had slash wounds across my fingers, and they missed the the slash wound in my back in my latissimus, so the, you know, the the muscle, the big muscle at the side of the back, the wing muscle, you know. Um, so, yeah, that was that until a couple of days later. As I was walking down Gloucester Ave, they were holding a carnival. A Monday, I think it was the first time they were holding a Monday night carnival, This was in 1993. And they, they put up a police cordon to search people as they got onto the hip strip. And I was one of the first people walking through. They searched me. And they, they were looking for weapons, basically. You know, drugs and weapons, mainly weapons. And they found three spliffs, in my cigarette box. I didn't guess this would be much bother. This wouldn't be much bother in the way I should get as a fine in this country, let alone in Jamaica, where ganja grows in the cracks in the pavements, you know. <laughs> um, but they made a thing of it, they took me to the cells. And one thing led to another. One of the guys tried to Get me to bribe him, you know, but I didn't realize that. When I think back now, I can see what he was saying. He kept asking me, have I got, what, what money have you got? Have you got more money? Where's the rest of your money? You obviously got more money. You're an English boy, where's the rest of the money? And, I was like, that's the money in me pocket. And who was asking you those questions? A policeman. So I was sat there in this cell now with this guy who'd been taken off the streets for uh, you know, supposedly harassing tourists. And he was saying to me, oh, well, it's okay, you go to court tomorrow and you maybe get a fine, they let you, let you out, carry on with your holiday. And he said, he said, how old is your rude boy? I said, I'm um, 16. He said, Yo, you already tell them you're 16. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. He went, oh, that mean you go a family card. This is Monday, you know. I said, I said oh, what time's family card? Oh, Thursday. I said, Thursday? thursday (laughs) so anyway he took me from there to kind of a barnet street correctional facility down in montego bay the next day um kept me there for a couple of days until family court on thursday come family court on thursday what happened then was the probation officer said to the magistrate, well as this juvenile is only, forgive my awful accent, by the way, I can't help it. I've been performing this story a lot, and because I've, I've written things about it and, and whatnot, so and I, I always, I <laughs> know my Jamaican accent's awful, <laughs> but you know I can't help it. It's kind of part of the narrative. Anyway, um, so he was like, well, as this as this is uh, is 16 years old and is a juvenile, we will have to write a juvenile report which will be sent by post to England, where, whereupon it will be filled in <laughs> and posted back to Jamaica, whereupon we will verify the report, and until such a time as we receive that report back from England, there was no fax machine at the court. Remember this is before the days of emails, and everything. Well, there wasn't even a fax machine, this is 1993. Um, the juvenile shall be remanded in a place of safety. And we'll bring him back to cart, and, and they gave me a date which was like way, way after even the the the, the day that I was due to fly home, um, like weeks and weeks away. So they took me to this place, cops. Well, I went back to Barnet Street first of all, then over to cops' place of safety in Hanover, to an English boy from a little leafy village in Northern England. Cop's Place of Safety was about the most unsafe place I'd seen in me. It was indeed the least safe place I had ever been. (laughs) And there was a place in Cop's Place of Safety called the Strong Room, where they put boys who had been caught fighting or trying to escape, that kind of thing. And it was underground, like underground in Jamaica. And there was no, the taps didn't work and the toilets didn't flush and there was no other way of washing the way, no showers. You don't leave 24-7. Twice a day, they bring us a, a bucket of mush and, uh, and and some tepid tap water in bottles. Somebody gave me an empty milk carton to scoop this mush with and eat with my hands. <clears throat> it's a hell hole. Well, I got out of there after a couple of days. Ah, <sighs> yeah. When my brother eventually found out where I was and came to see me, he got me out of there and then i was in just staying at cops place of safety in the dormitory bit which was a very different world altogether the, the boys used to walk out of there and go swimming down in the river go walking up the mountain apparently there was a raster on the top of the hill who sold ganja they used to go and get ganja off the raster they used to go to the shop and buy beer they used to go and buy chicken and we'd make go and we'd make dumplings there was somewhere, there was somewhere not far that you could steal some plantains from and they'd fried things up and we'd have little parties outside. But you know, it was a very, very different life to the strong room. And there was a guy in there who looked after me. He was kind of looked up to by everybody else. And he just took me under his wing. Sometimes you have like an instant connection with people, especially in difficult situations. And you kind of have that. Well, sometimes you can meet someone that you just feel like you know already, but also you make them bonds real quick in harsh circumstances and we just became real close everybody everybody knew immediately we were you know inseparable um and he had the same birth date as me and we had a little party for our birthday in there and a couple of days later we went swimming in the river and he and another boy disappeared we're having a race while I watched them race, I wouldn't get in the water because they had these stab wounds. I thought I don't want to get some infection in a you know in a, in a, in a tropical country. I don't you know they got these huge holes in me leg and me hand and me back. You know I'm not getting in this water. And so I was watching them swim, and these two boys they were swimming, having a race, and they just slipped under the water, real peacefully, one after the other. And I watched them, and I kept watching them when the water was still. Shimmery, and I just watched it. I watched the reflections of the trees and the sun and the waters. They must be playing some. Ca- They're going to pop up over over there by those trees. They're trying to play a trick on us or something. And they never did resurface. Oh, and that was it. Eventually, some of the other lads started shouting, "Where them go? Where where'd them go, Englishman? Where them go?" I don't know. And they, they were walking up down the river shouting the names. And I'll say that there, there, there was a couple of a couple of old guys that had watched us walk down there. They were sat in like a, like, as I remember, like, a, like a wooden house, like with a veranda, they were sat outside and they watched us walk down there. And as we walked back, forlorn, crestfallen, like shocked, like not knowing what the hell is going on. Totally dazed. All of us, you know, uh, these, the, 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 these old guy that asked us, if you lose your friend. Yeah, 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 we've lost our friend. Oh, enough man's drowning in that river, you know. It's have a spinning undercurrent. He just watched us walk down there. Mm-hmm. And when we got back to cops, the the woman who I guessed, I never knew what her title was. No one wore uniforms or anything like that or had badges, you know what I mean? They were just like in normal clothes. so I do not know what anyone's title was, you know but she seemed to be in charge. I got back last, because I was just, I'd watched this happen, I, I was just t- totally, I don't know, I, I was just in shock. And I, I wandered in last to see the other boys getting told off. And I heard, I heard the woman say, as I walked up behind them, well, now you see what happened when you break the rules. And that was all that was said to me about it. You see what happens when you break the rules. Oh, okay. <laughs> a couple of days later, they found the bodies downstream. I eventually got out of that place anyway, you know, after about two and a half weeks of this nonsense, the American embassy fought, there was a guy who worked for the American embassy who owned our hotel. And the American, the English embassy did nothing to help me, by the way, my parents were very, intelligent very highly educated very professional very successful people obviously my dad had family and connections with other very professional successful people in jamaica and there was nothing he could do and the english embassy didn't do anything they were like well if he's broken the rules then if he's broken the law then what can we do you know like but he this is an english boy he's a light-skinned english boy he will not fit in he might get killed. Indeed, I missed this, but I, there, was, there was one point in the strong room where I was beaten unconscious with a big stick. After that, three guys and I, I beat one of them because they forced me to, they forced me to fight. I got one of them down, uh, but the other one picked up this stick and hit me across the head with it. Whilst other people were shouting, beat up, beat up the white man. Um, so yeah. I eventually got out of there because this guy was forced to help me to uh, to sign for my bail. Um but I of course had no intention of staying in the country after my flight home was due. But this guy owned our hotel and he had our flight passes and tickets and travelers checks remember them in his safe. So we had to get our things from his safe where he he'd signed for my bail. It was his reputation and his money on the line Mm -hmm. if I didn't go back to court. Mm -hmm. We had to get our things and get the hell out of the country. And they did try to stop us on the day our flight was due. They were looking for us at the airport. And we just about managed to get on that plane.
0: Mm. Hmm. So what happened next? So you left Jamaica and you came back to
1: England? Mm. I got back home and, you know again, you don't think of it in these terms while it's happening, but looking back now, I'm 45 years old, this is like 28 years ago, and I'm, you know, I've I've experienced a lot (laughs) since then, and looking back on it now, I guess I had a lot to prove then, and I was incredibly angry, I guess depressed sometimes, Um, I ended up living a certain kind of lifestyle for a few years, getting in trouble for all kinds of things I now had done, you know, I guess, nearly exactly a year, the next summer, nearly exactly a year after getting stabbed in Jamaica, I was arrested outside a nightclub in a town called Widness, outside the nightclub called Top of the Town, threatening somebody with a long-bladed kitchen knife, somebody who had shouted racial slurs at us, in the nightclub you, know, you know and did you have that knife i had the knife oh gosh yeah, yeah i had the knife i was chasing them all we had the fight in the club then we went and got some knives went back to the club because we'd been chucked out by the bouncers and they were still outside and that's so we ran at them and they fled and then we chased one of them around the estate until the police came and then threw the knives in the bin which the police kind of retrieved within about 25 seconds <laughs> Very clever very clever lads would you like to put these on your wrists and get in our car please <laughs> so you know and i was arrested for you know all kinds of you know all kinds of things so how was your life turned around
0: after those experiences
1: my life was turned around by by writing um what did you write I'd always written little stories and stuff since I was very little. It was just like a hobby, something I liked doing. As I got older, I kind of didn't share that with anyone. As I got older, I kind of just kept it to myself. School left me feeling like I wasn't very clever. If you can't do the sit still and listen to us all day thing, then you're not one of the good kids, therefore not one of the clever kids, therefore you may as well just do whatever you can be good at, which for me was being loud and daft and being a bit of a clown Um, and using my energy to entertain people. So I'll ask you know, with, you know, very few, like one, one, you know, C grade used to call it back in the day, you know, so one pass GCSE, which was in PE, which I'm, I'm not being, I'm not being rude to anyone. I have been a fitness instructor. I love kind of a physical activity and martial arts, all that kind of stuff. But you know, a GCSE in PE doesn't really count, does it? Doesn't really count. But anyway, anyway, I had one GCSE. Uh, so I wrote, I wrote stuff. And by that point, I was writing a lot of poems, I just found it a real quick, succinct, um, passionate way of summing up how I felt. So I used to write lots of poetry, but I didn't read at that time. I didn't read. I was very passionate about writing, but I didn't read. And this is probably the case for a lot of people who end up rapping. Yeah, yes, rapping. Tell me more about your rapping. So I went to college when I was 21, because I decided I had this, for one, I was sick of my lifestyle. I was sick of it. I was just bored with it. It wasn't really me. You know, I just knew something had to change. And also I had this burning desire to kind of admit that I like writing stuff and to maybe share it with people. So I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be author. Um, But I had these poems and stuff and knew, as this thing was happening in Jamaica, I thought, if I get out of here alive, this will be the basis of my first book. Um, I didn't know it was going to take 30 years to get there at the time, but anyway, <laughs> uh, we'll come back to that. Um, so I went to college just to meet people who knew about creativity, writing, poetry, that kind of things. I didn't have friends that knew about that kind of stuff. And I met a guy called Mac. He's now sometimes known as the Mac of all trades. He's a rapper, beatboxer, producer, all around genius musician, and he was starting a band, a rap band. And he said, "Well, you've got these poems. Why don't you, you know, come and join this band? You can use your po- your, your poems can be rap songs." Mm and i was like no they can't <laughs> i'm 21 um and i still had this bit of a kind of like a tough guy persona you know i was still like you know real pumped up on the weights and i had this you know shaved head and i still had this guy kind of... and i thought if my mates i can't suddenly become a rapper if i go into liverpool rapping and people who know me see me this, this is ridiculous i can't just be, just be a rapper i like rap And I've got an awful voice, I can't sing, I've got this horrible accent, I can't can't be a rapper. Um, But he and the other guys that he was working with eventually persuaded me to start shipping in. He introduced me to a guy who was rapping, a big hip-hop fan, a rapper called Philly Wiz, and we eventually met a guy called DJ Rasp, who's now one of the best scratch DJs in the world. And we started trying out ideas, reading these poems over beats. And so uh, the, the other guy, Philly Wiz, he'd he, he do his raps because he was a big hip-hop fan. So he, and he'd been rapping on tapes for, since he was a teenager. So he'd do his raps. I'd try my poems, see if they match. And we got some songs together. And we started performing. I missed the first concert because I actually got, I got hit over the back of the head again.
0: Oh, dear. Oh, dear. <laughs> but anyway, oh dear. anyway.
1: But, but I, you know, I was calming down, and, you know, and moving out with that lifestyle and rap allowed me to express that that anger and that resentment and uh, my feelings, my thoughts, and how I wanted to be, who I wanted to be, where I wanted to go, how I saw the world to be, the changes I wanted to see. I could express all that as a rap artist rather than ranting in the pub or fighting or getting in trouble. and that gave me an outlet and it was beautiful and I used to used to run around the stage sweating and people are you're so energetic didn't realize at the time that that's just that's called nervousness that because I was very scared of getting on stage it made me feel sick um for about 10 years it was very scary but I did it so that that got me and these guys were clever these guys read books one of their friends these are all still my friends now and one of them was in Oxford University doing some kind of I always call it microbiology, if he hears this, he'll, he'll tell me again, it's not microbiology Ash. But anyway, I always forget what it is. But he was in Oxford anyway, he's clever. And, um, so I started reading books, I'm like what, well, these guys know stuff and, and I started to realise as I started studying, I'm never going to be respected, if I'm never going to be good as a writer, I can rap, but I want to write, and I'm never going to be any good if I don't read. So I started studying hard every day. And that has been the case for the past, what, 20 odd years now, mm. studied hard every day and writing and reading and writing and studying and studying. I ended up in university, left university with a first class degree. Oh, well done. I, 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 could, I could barely make it through college. I had to do an access course. I only just... I kind of didn't quite get the, the pass mark, the kite mark they call it, to get me into university. We had to resit the test. Then I got into uni. I could only get like 50 odd percents at first, like you know, like a sec two twos, I think that was. I eventually started getting seconds by sometime in my second year. And I was doing this on and off. Now I had I had children. Now I had two children. I was running a business. I was a, a community artist. Running workshops and schools and all this kind of thing, trying to use the arts to change people's lives—the way it changed my life—and so it was. I was very busy, so I was doing a year on, a year off. By the second year, I kind of cracked the formula to get a first-class essay. I don't think I handed in a single essay in the third year that wasn't a first.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think every. Six of What's your degree? Um, it's, it's, it's called English Literature with Cultural History. Oh, very good. Very good. Listen, let's talk about um, rise up. Oh, let's. <laughs> so, at some time after that, when the the government, the, the, the new Labour government was voted out and the Tory government came in, I kind of knew there wasn't going to be much in it for the community arts anymore. Um, not to be political, but that's just the case. Um, when the when the Conservative Party are running the country, there is less money in the arts and the humanities and the community arts. New Labour were building, you know, leisure centres and city learning centres, and there was loads of money, a ridiculous amount of money in community arts. There was something called uh, 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 Creative Partnerships, and every city had one, and they'd be given five million quid every year, and that would be just to get artists into schools so that teachers and the artists can learn from each other. Um, But that all ended. So I eventually ended up working in nursing homes as a care worker again, but thinking, how can I turn this back around? I'd started writing my book, the story that I told you about Jamaica, but started writing that novel, but that was very, very difficult. It took me a long time. So I was doing that in all my spare time. And I decided, well, I heard about this thing that was happening. The Tories were privatizing part of the probation service. They gave four and a half billion pounds in the first payout to private companies, like InterServe PLC, a construction firm to run part of the probation service. Their kind of remit is to get more third sector organizations, charities, social enterprises, into the prison and probation service because what the probation service was doing was not working. What charities and social enterprises do generally works a lot better because people who run those organizations are in it because they have a vested interest and they give, the, it's like a lifestyle, so they give their, whole, their everything to it. And they're very often people with lived experience and that's why they want to help others. So this works. So the government recognized that, this was like David Cameron and when Gove was uh, the justice secretary, they were trying to reform prisons and probation, but some of it was some cynical privatization. Anyway, I said, the door will open. There'll be a, The door will open for the moment and we'll slip in and then the door will close and all this will go wrong, and these they'll be put back into the public sector. But by then, we'll have a reputation, and we'll be in there delivering our program. So me and my business partner, Stuart Cody, we I, I went to him to be the business end of the kind of a company. I said, I've got this idea. You be the businessy guy. You're very much more organized and good at remembering things and all that kind of stuff. Because <laughs> um, he'd been a kind of a contract manager for big organizations, that kind of thing. So we spent a year then, we spent a year researching and talking to therapists and uh, people with lived experience to uh, educators and artists, trying to fathom what this programme would be. But the idea was it would take people on a journey and it would somehow kind of reflect what I saw, how I perceived my journey to be. So from the point of going, I don't wanna live this lifestyle anymore, to the point of being, well, now, from a person who thought they were an academic I'm a person who has a first-class degree and teaching qualifications, that kind of stuff, from a person who was very violent, well, very angry, at least, and quite aggressive, um, to a person who is very, very calm and <laughs> really, like, kind of happy and, you know, has a kind of lovely life, you know? <laughs> um, is that you? <laughs> yeah that's me yeah 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 yeah. so it was kind of what what steps did I take on my journey what are the things I actually did with my mindset and I've spent about 10 years reading mostly like psychology and spirituality and, and self-help books that kind of thing trying to find myself if you're like, and, and that wasn't a big thing. But in my in my 20s, when I started, they were not we used to go into secondhand bookshops and ask if they had an esoteric section, any eastern esoteria, you know what I mean? Because those kind of things, there wasn't a lot of them nowadays Going to Waterstone, there's rooms full of it. But that wasn't the case 20 odd years ago, which indicates a consciousness shift in society as far <laughs> as I perceive it, which is a good thing. Anyway, the, the, the Rise Up course takes people on a 12-step journey and we teach, we use models, we teach people models that come from things like neuro-linguistic programming, a transactional analysis and we don't do therapy with people we bring in the therapist to teach the prisoners what you know about how the mind works what emotions are what the central nervous system is how to get control of all of that and therefore control your behavior communicate better avoid conflict get the most out of every situation and we do all that we engage people through the arts rap classical music, crafts, drama, poetry. That's what gets people in the room, opens them up, gets them talking, builds the rapport, and then we teach these amazing life-changing techniques. And the impact has been huge. The impact of Rise Up on people who have been on our course, and we've done it all over the country in many, many, many prisons. The impact has been huge, it has changed people's lives. I still get contact, people find me on the internet and contact me still to this day, telling me that years later, they are still on that path, that journey of self discovery and self empowerment and control.
0: And just thinking about your own journey, how you started Mm. and how you've used your experience to help others has Mm. been quite inspirational. And so um, I thank you, Ashley, for being my guest today on Behind the Yellow Tape. And um, I wish you all the best with your endeavours in the future.
1: So, it has been an absolute pleasure and an honour. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for listening. Ashley's award-winning novel, Locks, based on his own journey, as he's just described, is available from all the usual bookselling outlets. I am J.A. Lovelock. Join us next time as we go behind the yellow tape and catch up with more episodes at btytpodcast.com. I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you.